Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanick with Figured Out Baseball. Got an amazing Figured Out Baseball podcast today, one that I'm very, very excited about. And uh, it, it took a little while to get this one scheduled, but I'm so glad that I that we got it. That we've got uh, we're we're being joined by Steve Smith today, uh, a, a really great baseball name and an unbelievable background. Just wait till I go through his bio so you can learn more about him. Uh, Coach Smith is currently a pitching coordinator in the Detroit Tigers organization. That's very recent. So I'll give you his the rest of his background so you know all about him and where he's come from and, and a lot of the things that he's done. Uh, Coach Smith grew up in Gulfport, Mississippi. He played collegiately first at Mississippi College. He was there for one year as a two-sport athlete, as a football player and a baseball player on their team. Then he spent the last three years collegiately at Baylor. He was drafted out of Baylor by the San Francisco Giants in the fifth round in 1983. Uh, pitched in, then he, he played minor league baseball, uh, made it his highest AAA in the Giants organization. From there, he got into collegiate coaching. In 1988 and 1989, he was an assistant coach at Texas A&M. He then jumped to Mississippi State, where he was an assistant coach from 1990 through 1994. That 1990 team went to the College World Series at Mississippi State. Then in 1995, the spring of 95, he was hired as the head coach at Baylor a Division I school in the Big 12 in Waco, Texas. He was the head coach at Baylor from 1995 through 2015. While he was there, their 2000 team won the conference championship, the regular season conference championship for the first time, the first time Baylor had won a regular season conference championship since 1923. They went on to win two more regular season Big 12 championships in 2005 and 2012. The 2005 team went to the College World Series the first time that Baylor had been to the College World Series since 1978. In 2012, during one of the regular season games at Baylor, Coach Smith became the wing, winningest coach in Baylor history. Uh, he ended up with 744 wins by the time he finished in 2015. The team overall, while he was at Baylor, went to 13 regionals, four super regionals, and one College World Series. Uh, after one year of being out of college baseball, he spent the spring of 2017 as an assistant coach at Santa Clara. Then 2018 and 19, he was the pitching coach at Auburn. 2020, the shortened COVID 2020 season. And 2021, he was the head coach at Tennessee Tech, another Division I program, uh, before he jumped out of college baseball. Now he enters the world of pro baseball. Overall, as a collegiate head coach, Steve Smith has a finished with a career record of 768 and 561, assuming he doesn't get back into college baseball at some point, I guess, I, if I say he's finished with that record. Uh, then in October of 2021, he resigned from Tennessee Tech to take a pitching coordinator position in the Detroit Tigers organization. He will be the pitching coordinator for the upper-level minor league teams in the Tigers system uh, the, for the AA team and the AAA team. Coach Smith, thank you so much for being willing to jump on this podcast with me today. I'm, I'm very, very excited about it. Jeff, I appreciate that, and thank you for – that intro and the kind words, it, you know, it almost sounded like an obituary. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I lost my mom of 80. She was just short of 88 uh, about a month ago. And I, I, I wrote mom's obituary. And so I've, I've kind of been, I've, I've, I've kind of been in that same mode you went through going back and tracing my life. So I, uh, I hope that wasn't my obituary and I appreciate the, the, you're uh, recognizing that college baseball may not be over. Uh, you know, I, uh, I don't, I don't have five-year plans. I've never, I never had, I never had a plan past tomorrow. Um, you know, even, even to be a head coach, I never thought the, the two guys I worked for at A&M and then at Mississippi State, Mark Johnson and Ron Polk, I, I mean, I just, I, I was so blessed. I never thought one time about being in their shoes. I, I thought they they were doing they were so good at what they did. I just wanted to help them in any way I could, and especially being when I got to Mississippi State with Coach Polk. Um, you know, he uh, he let me do pitching and and the bulk of the recruiting, and those are the two things I really liked. And there was only one time I looked up in a game and he, he had gone to the mound without asking me anything and I thought okay he's uh he's decided today's not a development game this is going to be a win and but other than that one time I, you know every pitching decision for those years I was there I was making so 
I loved working for both those guys, and and uh, you know I wouldn't I wouldn't have had anything that came my way without both of them. Today's prog- podcast is brought to you by Crossover Symmetry, um, Coach. I'd like to ask you. I usually start with something from the bio that stands out. Uh, obviously, you have a lot there, but I, I want to kind of just piggyback off what you just said and ask you through through your coaching, well, well, playing and coaching career. Is there is there one coach that you can look back at and say, I I, I ended up being who who I am as a coach or even as a person because of this person or because of a, of a big influence this person had, and, and it could be a coach or it could be you know even like, you know someone from your family or whatever. But is there is there one or two people you can look back on? especially early in your career and say, because of the influence of this person, I am where I am, or I'm the, co- I'm the kind of coach that I am today. Well, that's a, that's a, a really great question and a, and a big question. And I have thought about stuff like that, you know, about particularly on the men's side, I think that there's, you know, the Lord has blessed me with some really, really good men in my life. Uh, and they weren't all coaches, uh, but they were all mentors. Uh, and having mentioned Coach Polk and and uh, and Coach Johnson already, I, you know the the guy who I think I learned the most from about coaching, and at the time he he was not trying to teach me anything about coaching, but the guy that I learned the most from about coaching was actually my dad, um, who was my dad grew up an only child on a dairy farm, okay, so I envisioned that he spent a lot of his life talking to cows. And, but I will tell you one of the, from a, from just a, from a pitching standpoint, all right, I first started pitching when I was 10 years old. And so dad was my catcher. uh, And one of the first things I remember he ever saying, he is ever saying to me uh, would have been when I would have been having trouble throwing strikes, he would just tell, he told me, he says, just, just say to yourself, throw to the mitt, throw to the mitt. And, you know, I mean, what do we got, man? It's like 50 years later, they're writing books about positive self-talk and, you know, focus and stuff like that. And, and he wasn't, you know, he was just, and I did that my entire career. I, I did that. I've used that as a pitching guy. You know, one of the things that, that you can't do as a, as a player, period, you know, much less as a pitcher, you can't have two thoughts in your mind. You can't be focused on two things. Uh, and so what is the most important thing for a pitcher in a game to be focused on? I mean, he's got, he's got choices. I mean, he can, he can be thinking about his arm. He can be thinking about his hand. He can be thinking about his back leg. He can be thinking about his front shoulder. He can be thinking about a bunch of stuff. He can be thinking about what he heard out of the dugout. But if he's not thinking about the mitt, he's not going to hit it. And that, you know, that was something that, that I, I learned at, at as young an age as I could have, I mean, from the start. And then, you know, that, there's other things that, honestly, Dad used to say three things. And he didn't always say them at the same time, but they were the three things that I have just lived by or tried to live by as a coach. And, and, the, and they were these. They were, he would say, keep your highs low and your lows high. You know, he would say, smell the roses along the way. And then he would say, this too shall pass. And I thought, golly, man, what a what a clinic for a baseball coach. I mean, baseball is such a, we all know it's a roller coaster, right? I mean, uh, at every level of the game. Um, you know, you better learn how to keep level-headed. You better learn how to keep those highs low and keep your lows high and not dig yourself a hole and don't get don't get on top of the mountain because pretty soon the game's going to knock you off of it. But then the, the one that's been the hardest for me to actually apply was the smell of the roses along the way. You know, I, I always have a tendency, I've had a tendency as a coach to not just allow or, or slow the, the season down enough to actually enjoy the ride and enjoy the process and enjoy the win. Um, you know, I, I'm interested. I, I, I watch these interviews, uh, you know, with these, you know, every professional athlete after they win a championship or after they won a playoff game, really. And, you know, and, and they'll, 
they'll the question inevitably what do you you know when do you start thinking about the next game and they you know and, and many of them will say you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna take the night to just enjoy this one and and that's such a valuable thing um because before you know it it's over and you know you just you just want to say what in the world was i doing um so smelling those roses is pretty good but then the other thing is just you know what this isn't eternal i don't care if the last game was was that championship in 2000 first in 76 years or or if it was you know the worst loss you've ever had which i've had both of them you know you, it's going to pass and you know and dad was saying those things to me and it's all about perspective and i think that's one of the things that we struggle with just as humans you know in whatever we're in we just we just struggle with perspective um and i think that was you know i think that's what dad taught me uh he modeled it you know i also think that i don't think we we don't get taught much we catch it um we catch it by observation and and just being around you know people but you know to coach polk and to coach johnson my first several years at baylor as a head coach i struggled with the question you're asking me i struggled with who i was because i had such esteem for both of those guys uh i thought coach johnson was a phenomenal teacher one-on-one of the game he could break things down uh systematically whether it was it was hitting or whether it was filling the ground ball whatever it was he was he was so i was blown away and i'd been in pro ball for four years and came out of it and went straight to there and i thought man i mean this is this stuff is incredible and and then i get to coach polk and and he was his he was they were the same but yet they were so different and by the way coach johnson had been coach polk's assistant too they were their best friends uh, and so my getting to to mississippi state was just purely because of the relationship between ron polk and mark johnson but coach polk was into teaching the game uh you know cuts and relays base running you've never seen anybody take more time teaching base running than ron polk and you know and so when I got into when I got my head job, who was I? Was I going to be Mark Johnson, you know, or was I? Gonna, I there's no, there's just no way I couldn't be Ron Polk or Mark Johnson. I had to eventually figure out who I was, and you know, I have told both of them uh, that I'm ashamed of who I was many times. I never ever in seven years with those two guys ever saw them do anything demeaning to a player. I never even could, I, I couldn't really even, I don't even think I ever heard them raise their voice. Uh, you know, I, I laugh at some of the stuff I remember Coach Polk saying. You know, I mean, I, he, 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 got, he got upset if we lost a Friday game at Georgia. I say he got upset. Nobody knew it. He was, you know, we got back to the hotel. He stood up at the front of the bus. And he turned around and looked at everybody. And in his voice that I like to, I like to mimic, because it's a great voice. He looked at those guys and he says, I don't like losing to bad ball clubs. Georgia is a bad ball club. <laughs> he turned around and walked off the bus. And you would have thought somebody, you would have thought somebody spanked all those players. I mean, they were so dis- they were, they were so disappointed that they had disappointed him. And, but he never he never called anybody out. He never raised his voice. None of them did. Well, my gosh, man! In my 21 years at Baylor, holy cow! I mean, I would have been I was a football coach in a baseball coach job. Anything, most everything that I did that I'm ashamed of today would have been completely acceptable and applauded as a football coach. But you know, there's a certain etiquette. And there's, you know, there's a certain way of talking to players in baseball that, you know, you just have to do. And I violated that more times than I, I care to talk about. Uh, but, you know, the men you referred to, there's others, you know, that built my faith that have helped me sustain through the last six years. Uh, the hardest thing I've been through is, is personally, you know, is, is being fired after 21 years 
after 35 years, really, of a relationship with Baylor. You know, I thought I thought the whole time I was working for the family business, and honestly, and I'm not, I'm not blaming anybody. That was bad for me to think that. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's not family; it is business, and you know that's that's a hard thing. It's it's been hard uh, getting past it. The, the years at Auburn were phenomenal and were healing, and I love those people now. And and um, they really that those two years kind of got me back going. Uh, you know, professionally for sure. Wow, there's a lot of a lot of different directions that we can go from there. Um, I, I wanted I, I wanted to ask you about Baylor, and I, I thought it would come a little bit later in the podcast. But since you since you touched on it now, um, let's go back there if you don't mind talking about that a little bit. Did you did you see that coming? You know, I know you had three years, three losing years in a row, but it wasn't like you guys were. I mean, you didn't lose 40 games. Um, you know, it wasn't an especially good team for three years, but, uh, you know, Baylor has certainly had worse years. Now, I, I would assume that some of the some of what happened there was because you raised the bar there. You raised the expectation of what Baylor baseball could be. But did you see, did you see it coming? I mean, did you know after that third year that if I, you know, did you know going into that third year, if I don't win this year, I, I, my job's on the line? Or did you have any indication whatsoever before it happened? None whatsoever. Um, and, and there's for two reasons. Number one, uh, no one ever told me that, um, you know, and I don't want to dig, I don't want to get into the weeds on this, but, um, Baylor was going through a different time. I didn't fit. I wasn't happy anymore. Uh, and I, 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 I had opportunities to leave two other times. One, the most recent, would have been in 08, and I didn't. Uh, and, and that made the last seven years really hard. Uh, the 2012 team was, was a record-breaking year. Uh, 12, we, we won 18 in a row in the league. We won the Big 12 Conference. We were 18-0 and 0 in the Big 12. We, we swept six straight series in that league. Uh, and we got ranked number one, uh, for the first time ever, just for, just for a little while. Uh, we wound up winning a regional, uh, at home. We hosted, we won that regional and we went to a final game with Arkansas that we lost, uh, in extra innings. You know, it's a, it's a really, really tough way to end of what was a great year. The year before we, uh, we, <laughs> we had a tough year at, uh, losing, we got beat twice. We had to get beat twice in a regional by Cal. Uh, but anyway, so 11 and 12 were really, really good. We lost a bunch of guys. And so I knew 13 was going to be difficult. 14, we got a bunch of injuries. So after 14, I, I called a meeting uh, with the athletic director and his, his lieutenants, and, and I got them around a the table. And I, I asked the question, I said, uh, I said, how much has it, has the cost to attend Baylor gone up in the last eight to 10 years? And the, 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 you know, the top guy, the money guy, the business guy, he looked at me and he said, I, I don't know. I think it's probably about 80%. And I looked at him and I said, it's actually 140%. And then I, then I wasn't trying to make an excuse. I was trying to educate and let them know something, that the kind of success we had had for so long was going to be really, really difficult to maintain uh, year in and year out. Uh, the, the net result of that increase was something like this. If I offered a guy 75% uh, seven, eight years prior to that, he owed four to $5,000, Okay. When I got fired at Baylor, if I offered a guy, say, if I signed a guy to 75%, he owed almost $20,000. So it's, it's, it's like having your scholarships cut. Now, I didn't, I wasn't, compl I wasn't trying to complain. I wanted to tell him what my plan was. And that was the reason I called the meeting. I said, here's, here's my plan. I said, I'm going to have to, we're going to start redshirting some guys. If I think we can have a guy for four and five years, all right, then I'm going to try to keep it. 
for four or five years. I'm going to try to beat better teams with older teams. Uh, and that's a play That's a play right out of the Ron Polk playbook. I mean, he, he redshirted virtually everybody. I had not done that, uh, hadn't had to do it, but I had gotten to the place where I thought that's what we needed to do. And, you know, we everybody looked at each other, nodded their heads, and said, go get them. Uh, if somebody right then, if the athletic director right then and there would have said, look, I like your plan. I think it's well thought out. I think, you know, it makes sense. But next year's big. I mean, we, you know, 2015, we got, you got to get to the tournament. I would have nodded my head and I would have gone and gotten my schedule and I would have made sure we weren't the number one ranked schedule in the country in terms of difficulty. Uh, I would have probably had to have let some players go. All right, because I was—I had never been a big hire and fire guy. We had some, you know, we had some guys leave. We weren't Lily White in that regard, but you know, I was sticking with some guys, you know, that I would—I would have been forced to have had to make some changes. But that didn't—we didn't have that conversation. That didn't happen. Uh, so, without going into any more detail, that made 2000, the end of 2015, a bit of a shock. Uh, I didn't read the paper. I didn't read. The, I didn't follow the message boards. I didn't read any of that stuff. Um, so I think maybe I was the only one that was blindsided. I don't think. I don't think a lot of other people were. Uh, but it did sort of, you know, it did sort of discount. If I had been hired in 2016, if that was my excuse me, if I'd been hired in 2013, if that was my first year to coach at Baylor. And we had those first three years, if those records were what they were, would I have been fired after three years? No. No. Uh, and that's what really, that's what really hurt. That's what really, because it really meant that, you know, the 18, the other 18 years didn't really matter. So at that point, you, you really do, it's hard to think it's not just personal. You know, it's just the person, it was personal. Um, and, you know, a year later, uh, almost less than a year later, uh, you've got uh, Baylor going through probably the worst uh, case of Title IX violations and sexual, you know, sexual assault stuff in the history of the NCAA. And, you know, I didn't look at that and take any pleasure in that at all. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a graduate of Baylor. I have a, I have a degree from Baylor, uh, as does my wife and and two sons and other other family member on her side. So I didn't take any joy in that. But the arrogance, and I'm, that's my word, the arrogance that led to to me being pushed out without any conversation uh, is the same level of arrogance that led to those Title IX violations. And I think the university has been humbled at this point. I'm proud that they're they're winning the right way now. Um, but man, you sure got me going on this. <laughs> uh, I could, I could, I could go on for far too long on it. That's a good uh, question. I love, I, I, I love Baylor. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I stayed. I, you know, I stayed. I could have left. Uh, I thought it was where God wanted me to be. And, and I still think those folks weren't in control of my life. I think that, you know, uh, God's hand's been on my life. You read that. You read that bio and all those places. You know, the first time I met Mark Johnson, that coach at Texas A&M. Where's that? The, the very first time I ever met the guy. I was a senior in high school in Gulfport, Mississippi. He was an assistant baseball coach at Mississippi State. He came down to the Biloxi Community Center to do a hitting clinic on a Wednesday night during my senior year, spring of my senior year in high school. I went over there because I wanted to meet the assistant coach at the place I, I dreamed of playing. I can trace every single thing that happened to me as a coach back to that night. Uh, he's the first coach that hired me. Uh, I got to Mississippi State because of the relationship between him and Coach Polk. And I became a head coach at Baylor simply because I had worked for two great institutions and two great coaches like Ron Polk and Mark Johnson. Um, I didn't pay my dues. I didn't start in junior college and work my way up the ladder. Uh, I, I mean, it, it, it was, 
it was my my way was paved um and at the end of 35 years um it was over that that journey was over and i i i look at it i don't look at it as a chapter i look at it as a book and that's how the book ended but a new book has begun and and i think uh i think when this book is over it'll 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 read similar in terms of how the lord blesses and how he works in people to put us in places where he wants us to be you mentioned that those couple years at auburn were very healing to you um you had one one spring where you weren't coaching anywhere then one year at santa clara and then back to auburn well not back to auburn but 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 then you went to auburn for two years and those years were very healing to you what does that mean to you coach smith that those those years were very healing um i felt like you know obviously as a coach players and coaches are not a whole lot different honestly and i think i'm more like a player uh than maybe a coach in a lot of ways but you know i it was it was i mean i was hurting i mean i i was hurting you can probably still hear my voice today i i was hurting uh, i had gone through a divorce i i will that's my word and i i apologize to anybody that's literally gone through one but i i uh, you know it felt like after 35 years of being associated with baylor to be fired i'd gone through a divorce and obviously they had remarried and uh and i had started to date again and uh i you know i went out to santa clara that was a good experience players embraced me and when you talk about the healing i think the healing came from the players uh when i got to auburn uh you know what i i, I quit being called coach smith anymore and i was simply smitty and i loved it and i had i walked into a bullpen the first the first day i was there and I inherited a guy named Casey Mize, who, who at the end of that year went number one overall in the draft, and three other guys that are all going to pitch in the big leagues, two of whom are already in AAA, and one was a first-rounder, you know, two years later. And those guys loved me, and they loved on me. And we worked together, and I learned a ton. I mean, I had known Butch, you know, Butch Thompson, the head coach. I'd known Butch since he was playing way back in my Mississippi State days. He was the guy – uh, you know, he played at Birmingham Southern for Brian Shoup, who was also a coach for, for Coach Polk. When I got hired at Mississippi State, first thing Polky made me do was go to Birmingham and sit down with Brian Shoup, you know, and let him tell me about all the things he did as a coach at Mississippi State. Well, that's where Butch, Butch was playing there. And, you know, here we are, how many years later is that? That's 27 years later, I think. Yeah, about 27 years later, Butch is the head coach at Auburn. And, you know, we, we ran across each other, uh, at Omaha that I think that summer, but he called me and he said, you know, would you be interested? And I couldn't believe Butch is a great pitching guy. Uh, and he'd been a pitching guy in the SEC at a bunch of places. And for him to even think about turning his pitchers over to me was a bit, was, was, was overwhelming. I, I felt a tremendous honor but also felt an unbelievable responsibility to do good by him. And so I, I loved it. I was very singularly focused. All my job was to help these pitchers and the coaches guys and the managers guys and uh, to connect with these guys. Um, I was knee deep in the technology for the first time because that stuff had really come on board in the last four or five years. Uh, and, you know, the one thing I learned uh, probably that that I think is a lesson for for all of us is you know you can get yourself in a cocoon sometimes, and I think probably the last ten years at Baylor I was so I was so wrapped up in recruiting, which is not a bad thing to get wrapped up in, but the lifeblood of a program is its players. But you still got to keep growing as a coach, and I think the on the pitching side of things, the growth was was happening very fast uh, with all the technology. And it wasn't until I got fired and showed up at Auburn that I realized, you know what, you, you really, you, you've been in a cocoon for probably the last seven to ten years while the game is on the pitching side has continued to go forward. So I started growing, learning, uh, 
you know, you're as an assistant coach, your relationship with players is so different and, 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 and can be so different. You know, you can go sit down in the locker room, put your feet up on a table and, and have conversations and tell jokes and, and, and get all of them. And, and for me, you know, they looked at me as, you know, I was a veteran guy. I was an older guy. Uh, I think they probably were shocked. I was willing to sit down and talk to them, but I, that's, that's me. I just love, I love players and I love coaches. So, uh, it, it was healing and we had great success and, you know, but I was the volunteer. So I, all of my, all of my income was coming out of camp and I was having to buy my own insurance. I didn't have any benefits and, you know, ain't it crazy, uh, you know, how, how sometimes, and I'm, I'm, I'm just going to speak very faithfully and very honestly with you. I, you know, I, I wanted to be the pitching guy in the SEC. I wanted to be a pitching guy at Auburn, and the NCAA didn't pass that third assistant. And I was shocked at that, honestly. And I'm a board member for the ABCA, the Coaches Association, and I, I thought we did a poor job of, of, of educating athletic directors in the Big 12 and in the Big 10, you know, who leagues like that voted against adding a third assistant. That's, that's just astonishing to me. Uh, what they did and what the impact on me was, all right, you know, I, I can probably finish out this year, which would have been 2020. I was, I was probably committed to staying through 20. But then I was going to have to find something that instead of getting a 1099, I was going to get a W-2. And, you know, January of 20, I get, you know, a job comes open in the middle of the year, Tennessee Tech, a place that had had great success, you know, really recently, 17, 18. Uh, you know, was I, was I chomping at the bit? No, but, uh, but the door opened and, and I took it and immediately I realized, you know, this is, this is a tough thing. I mean, the resources there were, were less than what I would say many high schools have. And I, I don't, I mean, they're doing the best they can. Uh, but there was just a lot of, there was a lot of difficulties about that. Uh, you yourself, I think, understand the, the challenges that every coach in the OVC, you know, faces, not just Tennessee Tech, everywhere. Uh, but I also thought they would have had a taste for winning coming off of 17 and 18, and it really wasn't. It really wasn't like that. I think it was just hard. But but I realized, you know, the Lord had, had provided an opportunity for me and had given me that, <laughs> given me a place to, to stop. Uh, got a chance to recruit some really good players. Uh, brought, you know, got a bunch of transfers coming in through the portal and other ways. And I hired a good staff and. And it just was the, it got me through the period of time where I, I needed, uh, I need to take care of my family, I need to take care of my wife. And, uh, and it happened at a very opportune time, which I, I think is, is just the Lord taking care of me. And, and that's what he's done again now with this, this new opportunity you mentioned earlier with Detroit. Uh, it's a door that I'm excited about, but I think the time at Auburn, has prepared me more for this door with Detroit than probably anything I've done. I don't know if, if this is um, the question that I should be asking, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Are you nervous about taking this job with the Tigers? Just, you know, I, I mean, you played pro ball, yeah. but like someone like me, I never, I never was a very good player. I didn't have a chance to, you know, wasn't even close to being a pro player. If I were to take, uh, a job in pro ball, I would be, I'd, I'd be nervous about it. I'd be intimidated by just the fact that like, Hey, these guys are a lot better than I ever was. And are they really going to want to, to listen to me? Um, are you nervous at all about taking this position? It's a yes. And in, in a good way. All right. I, I will. Uh, and I, and I, and you're exactly right. I think that uh, being able to connect with players, um, you know, you can't fake anything. I mean, and I never have anyway. I We've been on the phone, what, 30, 40 minutes now. You know I'm not going to fake anything. Uh, so I, uh, it's a good, it's a good nerve. It's an excited nervous. 
I've already been through uh, with staff. We uh, we met for three days in Lakeland, Florida, about ten days ago, and you know we flew down there. We met for about three four hours that evening. The next day we met for twelve. The next day we met for about six, and then we got on a plane and left. And when I came back, I felt like I had been gone for a month, and and it reminded me of grad school. All right, when I was at A and M. I was an undergrad secondary ed major from Baylor. But when I got to AM as a graduate assistant, I did not want to do a master's degree program in education. I, for various reasons, I wanted to do it in business. So as an undergrad secondary ed major, I was in an MBA program at Texas A&M. I was surrounded by all these undergrad business majors and all these undergrad engineering majors who were way smarter than me. All right, and they all had they all had much more relevant preparation for an MBA program than I did. So I can honestly say to you, and that thing was fifty five hours long. It took two calendar years to do it, and I was scared every single day of it. And but I learned this, you know, quickly, and it wasn't a hard lesson. It just was a valuable one to always surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. And that's what happened there. You know, in a grad program, you're, you're doing a lot of group work. You're doing a lot of case-type classes, case projects and stuff. And, you know, I wound up making some really good friends, all right, in different classes. And I was sort of, you know, I kind of put the groups together. And the one thing I could bring to any group uh, was two things. One, I had a key to Olson Field which that's a ballpark at Texas A&M. So we always had a place, a private place to meet, okay, because we could go to the lounge at Olson Field. I had the key to it. The other thing that I brought to every group was the ability to speak. So when we had to make the presentations to the class, I could do that. All right? Now, and, and I, the other thing I did, I thought, was I would ask questions that maybe they never thought of asking. Honestly, because they're just too smart to ask them. And I really felt like uh, that was my value to all those groups. Of course, when we, when we made the presentations, if I got asked a question at the end of the presentation, I would refer that to my esteemed colleagues so they could answer it. All right? And I think what I learned overall at the end of that MBA program is really who to call uh, if you have a problem. Any kind of business-related problem, I know who to call. Well, going down there, you know, sitting there around that table for three days in Lakeland was a lot like that. I was around some really, really sharp people. Now, I was not as uneducated as I was in that MBA program, but it was similar, and it was challenging. And there's a the, the world of tech is 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 amazing. And what we have available to us now as coaches uh, and the kinds of conversations that we can have now with, with pitchers and with players in general, are, are it's, less, it's less guesswork. Uh, you know, it's more objective. Uh, but I do think that experience and your eyes, uh, for those of us that have been around the game a long time, are still extremely valuable. And the way you present information to different players and kind of how you've connected to it with them and how much trust you have developed with them is still, it's still the most important thing in the whole process. Uh, so nervous. Yeah, a little bit, but more excited, uh, about it. Uh, you know, one thing that, that I learned myself, and I think I probably speak for a lot of baseball players in general, and most of us as baseball guys, all we ever wanted was for people to care about what we did you know when we were playing we wanted them to we wanted to we wanted to care we wanted to go places to play baseball that cared about it you know when i was when i was coming out of high school i had three places that i would have would was strongly you know hoping to go play and they're all different really different one was was delta state division two school in cleveland mississippi uh one was south alabama kind of a, a mid-major in Mobile, Alabama. The other one was Mississippi State. 
And I thought, what in the heck, you know, why was I thinking about that? I've, I've looked back on it and I thought, you know, the one thing they all had in common, they loved baseball. I mean, they just flat out loved baseball. Um, and that's, that's all, that's, those were places I wanted to play. Uh, and then when I, when I got into coaching, the one place, and, and this is no, this is no secret. I don't think there's an institution, a, a division one institution anywhere that loves baseball more than Mississippi state. Uh, it's phenomenal. It's, but it's awesome. And that's why I think I could have stayed there forever. And, you know, when you leave there and you go to a place like Baylor, Baylor wasn't a bad place, but you know, baseball was just baseball. You know, what they really, really wanted to do was football and they finally got it done and they're doing it now. But, uh, you know, and, and Auburn, you know, Hey bud, Auburn loves football. Uh, they want to be competitive in everything and Butch has got to stay competitive, but you know, they love, they love it. Uh, Tennessee tech, you know, they're just trying to, you know, keep from going under. Uh, but now in professional baseball, that's all there is. So it's like you know, all they, all they think and breathe is how do we get better today? And that's, that's, that's right in my, you know, that's right in my wheelhouse. So love that what um you kind of mentioned a little bit about what you brought to the table as a graduate assistant or as a graduate student at texas a&m what do you bring to the tigers in in a world where you're surrounded by i'm sure a lot of people that are a lot younger that are uh that, that are very um tech focused at least some you know some of the guys are for sure what does someone like you with your experience um and your background, what do you bring to the Tigers, Coach? Uh, I think uh, a lot of practical insight and practical wisdom with relation with as it as it uh, relates to pitcher development and human beings in general. Uh, I've spent the last uh, couple of days uh, making phone calls to. Uh, probably about 25 of the pitchers and most of the, the guys that are, you know, at the double A and triple A level. And just, it's just been introductions and just talking and, and those have been easy, easy calls. Um, and we've talked, most of them have been, you know, 30 minutes, you know, and I, I think that's, if, if I, if I have any uh, gifting, you know, I think that's it. I think, you know, if it's, if we're talking about baseball, I, I, I think I can talk to anybody. Um, you know, there's other things I'm probably not, you know, probably way more difficult, but when it comes to baseball, I, I can, I can talk and I've, I followed, you know, I've had a ton of guys going to professional baseball, been blessed to have a number of guys go to the big leagues and have had a handful of first rounders. So, you know, and even the most recent being Casey, uh, who, who ironically is with Detroit. Uh, as I told you earlier, he, uh, I mean, he's not the reason I got the job, but if he, he'd be the reason I wouldn't get it. I mean, if Casey Mize didn't, didn't believe in me, I wouldn't be working for Detroit. I can promise you that. Um, so, uh, I think a passion to keep growing, uh, you know, as a coach, growing as a person uh but we're talking you were talking humans you know we're talking soft skills we're talking relationships we're talking being able to connect with people that's what coaching is um you know it, it just is and uh, that's that's what i i enjoy doing i don't i don't really have to work at that i love talking uh, i've been around long enough now that it, you know, most of the guys I've talked to on the phone the last couple of days, we've got mutual friends. You know, I either know somebody that coached them or I know somebody that played with or I know somebody, you know, we, we've crossed paths somewhere. I'm, I've got one guy. I've got one guy that uh, uh, my older son, Ryan, when I got fired in 15, he was in the middle of rehab at Tommy John and still had eligibility left, but he graduated. So he was a grad transfer. He wound up at Louisville. So that 2016 year that, that seems like I fell off the map, I was, uh, I used it as a working sabbatical and 
you know, my wife and I lived in an Airbnb in Louisville, and I spent most of – I saw them play a ton. But then I watched a whole lot of Midwest baseball and, and you know, walk, go down to Vandy and see uh, Tim Corbin, who's a close friend, just watch them work and watch their practice. I tried to learn. That's what I spent 16 doing. Well, actually, one of my pitchers now uh, with Detroit was a teammate of Ryan's in 2016 at Louisville. Um, another guy uh, in the big league rotation, Tyler Alexander, uh, was a teammate of my younger son, Case, when they were 14 years old playing uh, Mickey Mantle baseball in Dallas. So, you know, it's just, it's relationships. And, uh, you know, those things matter, especially when, especially when you're making suggestions, especially when you're trying to guide somebody. And he's ultimately the player. Uh, and this is where I think people, coaches, really miss the boat. Uh, we, we don't make decisions for players, all right? If we're making decisions for players, we got a real needy player. Uh, and there's a real fine line between being needy as a player and being coachable. And, you know, these guys at this at this level of the game, and even at the, even in, you know, outstanding high school, outstanding college players, the, the most talented player, he's not needy. He's coachable. Uh, and, you know, to be – to be able to coach a guy is really to, is really about having a relationship with him and having a conversation with him that he may you may learn more from him than he learns from you. Uh, but it, it really is about it really really is about the relationship. This is this has been an awesome, such an awesome podcast so far. We're not done yet, but I just when you're answering when you're answering that question, I was just sitting back and thinking, like, I can't wait for people to listen to this. Um, this is such a it's been such a great podcast so far, Coach. I got a couple more questions for you before I let you off the hook. Um, I want to go back to something that your dad used to say to you: "Throw to the mitt." Um, and 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 you kind of said at that time, and some other things your dad used to say as well, just how how insightful your dad was even though he maybe wasn't trying to necessarily coach or, or maybe knew exactly how much he was he was really coaching you by doing things like that and now that you're about to enter pro ball you've been obviously to the highest level of college baseball um where you know where, where there's every sort of tech imaginable available to you including pitch calling headsets which i believe we talked about before we started recording um and i don't i don't know that we'll have a chance to get into it in this podcast even your thoughts on that but but I just want to go back to that phrase your dad used, throw to the mitt, and you said that that was something that you've used as a coach over the years. Um, do you think that, that baseball in certain ways is getting too complex where sometimes we lose the human element or some of the things that maybe can't be measured or, or the fact that you're just you're overcomplicating things? You know, that's one of the things that I think is beautiful about the, just something simple like throw to the mitt. Or my dad used to say to me when I was a kid, about the same age that your dad said that to you, my dad was telling me to say over and over again, hit the target, hit the target, hit the target when I was pitching or see the ball, hit the ball as a hitter. You know, that's what I grew up saying to myself as a, when I was on the mound or, or at the plate. Um, do, you, do you think that, that sometimes, and maybe it's not the case in pro ball, but any, any levels of baseball that things like tech are clouding things and making the game more complicated than it needs to be where where certain levels of baseball might be better off just reverting back to how things were before all this tech came along when when um those simple type of directives were maybe what kids needed more than anything else well like most things i think it depends but i do think there's a pendulum that swings uh you know and in this case the pendulum in in baseball and, and even in professional baseball, which professional baseball is probably in the sport in general, has probably been one of the slower sports to change of all of the you know the major sports. They they probably have relied more on numbers. You know that's why we have minor leagues. That's why so many kids are drafted. That's why so many the 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 success rate of guys getting to the big leagues was so low. Uh, because the game itself, it was using the game to teach the game. And 
you know, now uh, there are some there are some things on the tech side that can be very valuable. Uh, we're now able to to slow things down in terms of grips uh, and see pictures of hands of balls coming off fingertips and where the the position of the hand is at release. Uh, able to to measure not just the velocity of the pitch, but the rotation, the spin of the pitch, and uh, how fast is it spinning or how slow is it spinning? Because either one of those things can be a good thing to know. I think a, a lot of the tech is helping us, uh, or helping a player really understand his identity, who who he is as a player. Is he is he truly a, a forcing fastball with a curveball? Or is he a two-seam fastball with a slider? And the tech can really help answer that. But as I mentioned earlier, I think your eyes, for those of us who've been around it a while, our eyes can tell us that as well. And so the tech sometimes just confirms it. But, you know, back to the pendulum thought, you know, the pendulum swung in some cases really hard to the right where – some organizations and some college programs, some people in general, just fully, fully embrace the tech. Uh, And now I think it's swinging back to more, I think there's going to be more of a middle. I think there's going to, the tech is not going away, nor should it. But I also don't think that the Ron Washingtons of the world, uh, who's in his 70s coaching third base for Atlanta, uh, and down on one knee, uh, hitting fungo every day, you know, one hot fungo to big league ball players, that's not going away either. Uh, you know, I, I think that all of this stuff should be used in such a way that it empowers the player and he gets to choose how much of it or how little of it he can adapt to and use. If, if it's, if it's, you know, if he's of the mind that he just wants to keep things simple, that he's probably going to use less of it or he's going to be more uh, more specific, more targeted on what kinds of things he wants to know or what kinds of things he's going to use. There may be other guys that, you know what, they they can't get enough of it. And, and it just, you know... You know, I, I had Max Scherzer for a pitcher on our national team in 2005, and I, I recently saw a video of, of Max. Yeah, I think it was on YouTube, and he was talking about his the, the pitch grips on all of his pitches, and he was so precise on 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 things. If he if he manipulated his little finger on a ball in a certain way, the ball was going to do this. It was it was what has changed, and I, I thought there's a guy who, you know, Max is in his early to mid thirties now. Uh, he's just he's eating this stuff up, uh, you know. And that's just an example. But there's there's other guys that that probably just you know they're going to stay away from it. Uh, they know who they are. They know what what has brought them success. They trust it. Uh, they know how to evaluate hitters. They know how to read swings. Uh, commanding the fastball is still going to be the biggest thing. If you can't command a fastball, forget it. It doesn't matter how hard you throw, and it doesn't really matter what league you're in. That that's where it all begins, you know, with a with a pitcher. And so, but I, I think the pendulum goes back and forth. I think it's kind of going to settle in the middle where you know, where it's probably the best place for it to be. This podcast is brought to you by Crossover Symmetry. If you want to build cannon arms that stay in top condition all year, check out armcare.com. Developed by Crossover Symmetry, armcare.com measures players' arm strength and range of motion and delivers customized prep, strength, and recovery training based on each player's wellness scores, strength needs, throwing workloads, and fatigue. It gives you the tools to keep your players at their peak all season. So check out the team packages on armcare.com and gain a competitive advantage in player development. Your players will be healthier, throw harder, and win when it counts with crossover symmetry. Coach Smith, one last question that I want to ask uh, is, is just a, kind of a wrap-up question. 
what what's something that of all the you know yeah I know you 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 know so many people out there and and you've coached so many guys uh, so many really great players done a lot of things as a coach and I'm sure that's what most people know about you but what is what's one thing if you have it one thing that you wish more people knew about you or even you kind of mentioned the very beginning the obituary talk and not that I, I obviously want to get into that but what's one thing that you hope people say about you or you wish people knew about you um, at the end of all this outside of, of coaching something that's important to you wow um, wow I don't think I've ever been asked that question before uh I know I haven't on a on a podcast or an interview. I, I hope that, and what I what I what I'm I'm trying to live my life in a way that uh, is pleasing to the God that I believe uh, created me and the Son of God who I believe died for me. Uh, I believe baseball. I believe sports. I think all of us have a platform. Uh, all of us have a love of something, uh, and I think those come from our Creator. And I'm, I'm, I, I didn't. My dad didn't coach. My mom was a teacher. My dad didn't play. He played fast pitch softball. He played some basketball, I think. But I never, I never had a coach. You know, a dad that coached a team that I was on or anything like that. I think my mom did everything she could to keep the ball out of the baby crib. Um, I mean, my mom made me take piano lessons. She made me take art lessons. I think she did everything she could to keep me being a coach. Um, but that's what was on. That's just who, that's how the Lord made me. I, I and I, I've just, I followed that. But at the same time, baseball for me is not an end in itself. It is a means to a much, much bigger end. And I just want to be able to share my faith and share my journey and share, uh, you know, how I feel like the Lord talks to me and uses, you know, people and, and how he's blessed me. Uh, it, it, that's, that to me is, is what I, and I failed at that so many times. I mean, I failed that I, you know, I want to win. I, I want to, I mean, I, I want to win. I know everybody says that I want to win. All right. I mean, I want to keep doing what I'm doing. I want to coach. Um, you know, when when I got fired, uh, I wasn't ready to quit. Uh, I didn't think the Lord was ready for me to quit. You know, I put a house on the market, put our stuff in storage. It stayed there for two and a half years. Um, I, you know, this is just who, it's just what I want to do, but I, I don't do it. I do it because I feel like there's that, that the Lord's at work here, and that there's there's He's writing a story, and I'm just a I'm just a I'm just a part of it. I'm not writing it; uh, He's doing it. And I know at times, I you know, I probably look like that I'm the most arrogant, uh, you know, sure of myself person on the planet, and that's that's just not true. I. Uh, uh, or I wish it were. I wish I never gave that kind of that kind of error about me at all because that's I've been blessed. I there's not anything that's happened to me as a coach that that I really deserved or that 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 I earned in any way. All I did was just show up. I told you I I went to a, I went to hear Mark Johnson do a hitting clinic and as a senior in high school. I just showed up, you know. I got offered a chance to go to Texas A&M and be a graduate assistant, and I said yes. Uh, I just showed up. Um, I didn't have anything to do with him being best friends with Ron Polk. And, you know, in August of 1989, you know, a job opens at, at a place that I wanted to always go play for the man that I always wanted to play for. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the opportunity to go there to coach. I just, I mean, I, I just, none of that stuff had anything to do with me. And, you know, and five years later, you know, the man that I played for at Baylor that wrapped his arms around me when I showed up there as a walk-on, uh, you know, I, that's who I followed. And 
you know, uh, and even down to the bitter end of it in 2015, um, I, I, even though that's not how I thought the story should end or, or would end, but if I'm not responsible for the beginning of the story, I, I'm, I'm not going to take responsibility for the end of it either. And, you know, so I feel like the Lord was still in charge and he's still in charge now. And when the day comes that, that, that this, this bio is an obituary, I would want people to know he was in charge. This has been one of the most enjoyable podcasts, if not maybe the most enjoyable podcast that I've had the privilege of recording. This is Steve Smith, everybody, who is currently about to enter his first year as a pitching coordinator in the Detroit Tigers organization. And uh, Coach, why you why you said yes to come on this podcast, I don't know. You and I had, had never spoken before, except when I reached out to you by chance on social media and you were gracious enough to respond back and, uh, and, and through a couple, you know, there's been several times we've tried to record this and it just hasn't worked out and and why it worked out this time. I don't know, but um, I am very, very grateful for you to take this time uh, to be here and to share everything that you did. And uh, I'm, I'm really pretty moved right now just with at the end of this podcast and, um, Thank you. Thank you for, for coming on and for sharing this with us today. Well, it's my pleasure. I, I'm honored you would ask me. Thank you.